My name is Dave. I'm the pastor here at the church, and we're going to spend some time studying the Bible together. So I'm going to tell you where we're going to be so you can start looking for it, and then I have a couple of announcements to make. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 today as we finish up the stories of the king, looking at how Jesus has impacted us by what he accomplished. Last week, we talked about the death and resurrection of Jesus. This week, we're going to look at what that has done for us, what that accomplishes, the grace of Jesus and how that transforms us. But before we do that, I want to say thank you for all of you that came and shared your blood with our community. Thank you very much for giving of yourselves. That's a very Jesus-like thing to do. And we've got this thank you note from Carter Blood Care. We had 31 people donate their blood yesterday from 9 to 3. So give yourselves a hand and give them a hand. Thank you very much. A practical way that you can serve. We've been encouraging you to do different things. Uh, Giving blood is one of those. Um, Another practical thing that we've talked about a lot is just reaching out. Phone calls and prayers for friends and those who are alone during this time. And so we encourage you to continue to do that. And we'll talk about that more as we look at our text today. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And as we really look at an application of the final story of the king that we saw last week, the death and resurrection of Jesus, if you remember, last week we talked about the curtain to the Holy of Holies being torn down. And so this week, what the author to Hebrews is going to tell us is that because of what Jesus has accomplished, he has opened the way for us into the presence of God. He has torn away that curtain, and he has done that by the sacrifice of his own flesh. And there's a really beautiful word that we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, and that word is translated as confidence. And it's a very unique word in the Greek, and it really means speaking freely, speaking freely. Confidence is a boldness to speak freely, to speak your mind. Um, Now, my wife is one of those people that is a gifted truth teller. And she is really good at, at pointing things out to me that I miss sometimes, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, but I want to focus on the reverse of how people often speak freely to her. Um, she's one of these people that's very compassionate and empathetic, and we found this thing over the years, just random people that she doesn't know will completely spill their guts to her. We'll be like at the grocery store, and I look over, and someone's in tears, crying, telling my, my wife their story. Um, And I believe what's going on there is because she is empathetic and kind, people feel the freedom to speak freely. They have a certain confidence in sharing their heart with her. And times a thousand with the Lord, times a million with the Lord, we have this access into the Holy of Holies. We have this freedom, this confidence, this boldness To run to the throne of grace is the way it's described earlier in the book of Hebrews. And so we're calling it today, calling this sermon, Grace-Based Vulnerability. This is more than just transparency. This is more than just the ability to speak freely. We have the freedom to be vulnerable before God. We have the freedom, because of God's grace to us in Christ, to offer our lives to him, to say, Lord, I don't know if I'm doing the exact right thing. This world is crazy. It's hard to make decisions in a world that's completely turned upside down. But I'm trusting you, and I'm letting myself be vulnerable to you. You are ultimately my only hope 
in this world. Grace based vulnerability. And that's going to translate out into the way we see God and the way we endure difficulty in this world. And then finally, in the way that we interact with each other. We'll see that in the text. We're going to read Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. Starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We thank God for his word. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And so we gather our lives around him. That's part of why we're reading the word, why we're studying the word together. And now I want to pray and ask God's Holy Spirit to teach us his word, that he would illuminate our hearts and help us to follow him. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you teach us. We thank you that you have not left us without instruction, but you speak to us through Jesus and through the recordings of his apostles, through the letters that tell us who he is and how we should follow him. God, we pray that you would empower us by your spirit, that you would help us to trust you more than our own ideologies and traditions. Help us to walk with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, the title is Grace-Based Vulnerability, Grace-Based Vulnerability, and this grace-based vulnerability is going to translate into three steps, three processes that we see unfold in the text. You'll see three phrases, let us, right? It's like, hey, everybody, let's do this, right? Let us do this, let us do this, let us do this. My summaries of those three points are that grace-based vulnerability approaches God. We're not scared of God anymore. We used to be scared of God. We used to avoid him. We used to hide from him. But now we approach God because of grace-based vulnerability. Secondly, grace-based vulnerability endures difficulty. It goes through hardship. And then finally, grace-based vulnerability commits to others. So the first thing that we're going to see in the first few verses is that grace-based vulnerability approaches God. We see this back again to verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we have to stop there for just a second. What's the therefore, therefore is what people like to say, right? What's the therefore, therefore? Well, everything he's talked, you know, the first nine chapters of Hebrews, which is just clarifying again and again that we have a better savior in Jesus. We have a better rest in Jesus. We have a a better Moses in Jesus. We have a better Joshua in Jesus. We have a better priest in Jesus. It is hammering again and again that Jesus is the one that we can trust and everything else we've seen in the Old Covenant in the Old Testament is foundational, is important, gives direction to where God is going with Jesus, but it's shadows and substances. I like to, uh, it's a shadow, not the substance. I like to talk about it as a flannel graph. Any of you remember in Sunday school with little kids, flannel graph where you'd like stick the little pieces of flannel on the board to show little stories, right? Almost like little paper puppets. Um, That's kind of the idea, or like a a billboard or a, a cartoon, The Old Testament is true, and it's our foundation for who Jesus is going to be and what Jesus accomplished for us, 
But now we have Jesus. He's the full thing. So we have these pictures, these shadows that point forward, and then Jesus is the fulfillment. Read through the book of Hebrews. It's, it's an encouraging book to read. And you walk away from it saying, man, I have everything I need in Jesus by his blood. And that's what the author is saying here. So because of that, because of all that we have in Christ, all that he's accomplished by his blood, he's taken our sins upon himself and our sins died with him in the grave and he's now risen to new life. We now have the resurrection power of Jesus by faith in him. Because of that, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. He's saying, through the death of his body, through his sacrifice, by his blood, that curtain has been opened up into the Holy of Holies, right? So this is the cartoon and the flannel graph and the symbolism of the Old Testament telling us true things that God is holy and we cannot come into his presence because we are not holy. But through the sacrifices, God keeps telling his people, I'm making a way for you to return to my presence. I'm making a way for you to come back into Eden, for you to return to paradise. And finally, we see the fulfillment of that way is in Jesus. He's the ultimate way. And now we can run with confidence into the holy place. We can be in the presence of God through Jesus. That curtain is torn away. We talked about that a lot last week in Matthew. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's using all this Old Testament ritual language, all the rituals, all the billboards, all the symbols, all the pictures that they were given in the Old Testament to clarify to people Your sin cannot come into the holy presence of God, but God can cleanse you. God can wash away your sin. A sacrifice can be made. You can't bring yourself into the presence of God, but God can make a way for you. God can bring you into his presence. And so because of that, we draw near, we approach, we run towards God. So the big applicational question for you is, do you resist God or do you run towards God? Do you think that you can somehow get yourself into the presence of God? Or do you think, you know what, it's not worth it, I'm going to run the other way? Those are the two ways we often deal with the sin problem, right? Somehow I'm going to get myself into the presence. I'll break down the door by being so good. I'll be so righteous. I'll be such a good kid that God will have to bless me. He's going to have to answer my prayers because I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to follow the rules. That's one way we try to deal with the sin problem. Another way is we just run away completely. We just say, forget this. I can't do this. I'm just going to you know, go drink, go have fun, whatever it is. I'm just going to party and try to not think about God at all. Those are the two ways that humans deal with this problem. We're locked out. I, I grabbed a picture of a door with a bunch of locks on it. Um, it's got, I don't know, 10 locks? Any of you ever lived in a place like this? Any of you lived in a big city where it was like lock, 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 lock? You had the multiple padlocks again and again and again. Uh, Most of us just have like a lock on the knob and one more padlock, you know. But if you live in a more dangerous place, there are multiple locks. Well, there's this message that was given again and again to the Israelites that we are locked out of the presence of God. All the way back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve fell, there was an angel that blocked the entrance to Eden. And the temple symbolized a lot of that same imagery. There were angels on the curtain, 
and they were not allowed to go in. There was this day of atonement once a year where the high priest went in. They would tie a rope to his leg when he went in in case the holiness of God struck him down and they had to drag him back out. But now that curtain's been torn away through Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that neither way of dealing with your separation from God works? The way of running away and denying it and partying, that doesn't work, right? The partying runs out. You end up rock bottom. You end up unfulfilled, addicted. And legalistic righteousness, being good, being perfect also doesn't work. You cannot be so good that God has to bless you. The only way in, the only way to unlock that door is through the cross of Christ. That's what we're being told here. If you believe in the cross of Christ, then you will run towards him, then you will approach him. So what does that look like in your life? Are you approaching self through good works? You're like, I gotta do better, I gotta do better, and then he'll have to bless me. Several weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the prodigal son, the older brother, who didn't really want to be with the father. He just wanted the blessings of the father. He was slaving away, working, trying to be obedient to get the blessings of the father. And then he was angry at the father when the father didn't give him what he wanted. That's how we bottom out in our legalistic works. Or are you like the prodigal son, the wild son? It's like, I just want to have fun. Man, I don't want to think about all this. (laughs) I just want to have a party. Is that where you are? There's a third way. It's Jesus. Jesus opens the door. Your good works cannot open the door, and pleasure cannot open the door. But Jesus opens the door into the presence of God. You can find salvation and peace through Jesus. And we're told to then approach God, to run towards him. Now, what does it look like for us to actually approach God I think principally, fundamentally, this is a heart and mind change, right? This is how we see God. And so when we have this mind change, then the good things we do are because we know that God has already brought us into his family. And so that's the fundamental mind change and heart change for our good works. God still wants us to do good works, right? All of you that are out there saying, but wait, I thought he wanted us to do the right thing. Yes, he wants you to do the right thing doing the right thing can't get you into his presence. We do the right thing as followers of Jesus because Jesus has already brought us into God's presence. And now we do the right thing in joy because we know that God loves us. The other thing we we learn is that that's the place where there is ultimate joy. The way John Piper says it is God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. God's glory and our joy meets in Jesus. That's the place of ultimate pleasure. Far beyond any party, any earthly pleasure is the joy of of trusting God. So, So how do we do that? I think one of the principal expressions of approaching God instead of running away from him is prayer. And this is hard for those of us that are religious do-gooders or rebellious, right? It's it's hard to pray. Because if we're rebellious, we tend to avoid God. If we're religious do-gooders, we just want to do good things. We don't actually want to talk to God, right? We just want to prove how righteous we are. Prayer is one of the principal ways we express faith in God. I've been praying that God would make me better at prayer. And that's my prayer for us as a body as well. I have a friend that uh, found this one uh, resource online that I want to recommend to you. Uh, It's a website, matthewhenry.org. 
A lot of you have probably heard the name Matthew Henry. It's like one of those old commentaries you can find, old copies of it. It's like a commentary on the whole Bible, old Puritan guy that just wrote a commentary on the whole Bible. Really good commentary. But he also wrote a book on prayer. And you can get a modern language update of this as like an email newsletter. We just get a daily email that has scriptures that are arranged by topic and they're kind of formed into prayers. So you're basically praying scripture. So basically, if you want to go sign up for this, matthewhenry.org, you can give them your email, and you'll get an email, which is a scripture for the day, or several scriptures for the day, arranged around different themes. It'll give you a way to pray. If you're like me, sometimes you're like, God, I don't know what to say. You know, I don't even know how to pray some days. This is a great way to pray. You're praying scripture. It's matthewhenry.org. Another resource is one I've talked about a million times, and I'm uh, not shy to talk about it again. It's a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. I think I grabbed a copy of it here. Yeah, here it is. Here's a copy of A Praying Life by Paul Miller. It's a great book in helping us to understand how prayer works biblically, what it means to be a child of God. We are dependent on him. We approach God as his children. A Praying Life. I want to recommend that to you. But bottom line, what I'm saying is we should approach God. We should approach God in prayer. We should approach God in worship. We should approach God with hearts, recognizing that he has cleansed our hearts. He's the one that's forgiven us. He's the one that's made the way. We didn't cleanse our own hearts. We didn't uh, break down the door to come in through the curtain, but Jesus opened the way for us through his death and resurrection for us. The next thing that we want to see is that grace-based vulnerability endures difficulty. Um, This is a hard one. We don't want to endure difficulty, right? Nobody does. And I want to clarify that Christians don't pursue difficulty. We pursue Jesus, and we trust Jesus when the difficulty comes, right? So Christians then endure difficulty as we obey Jesus in hard situations, in situations that we would have never chosen for ourselves, that are thrust upon us, and we trust that God is in control, and we have a God who is somehow turning difficulty in this world for his glory. He's redeeming the world. And when we get discouraged by the pain and the difficulty we're going through, and we're crying to God and we're saying, how long, O Lord? One of the encouragements is by looking at the difficulty that God himself took upon his own body as Jesus. He became one of us. He didn't, he didn't flee the difficulty. He embraced the difficulty of the lives that we live. And so we have a high priest that sympathizes with us, it says earlier in Hebrews, in Hebrews 4.15. He understands our weakness. He's been tempted in every way as we have, yet without sin. He struggled in every way we have, yet without giving in and sinning. So this next section, this confidence, this permission to speak freely, this grace-based vulnerability leads us then in verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Do you see that two main parts there? Hold fast to our confession without wavering. That means hold on to your confession that you're a sinner and Jesus is a savior. Do you see that? That's our confession. Confession in Greek literally means say the same thing as. And so when Christians confess, we're saying the same thing as God. First John 1 8, 9, and 10 talks about this. James 5 talks about this. We confess to God, we confess to each other that we're broken and God is our only hope. 
And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, hold fast, hold on to that, hold tightly to that, cling to that with all your might. I'm translating this as endure difficulty because he's saying, hold fast to this. And the broader context of Hebrews is you're going to be tempted to walk away from Jesus because things are going to come into this world that says, I've got a better savior for you. For the Hebrews, it was, why don't you go back to being Jewish and worshiping with all the other Jews? Give up on Jesus because you won't get persecuted so much. It won't be so hard. That was their temptation. We face other varieties of that ourselves. We face the temptation to say, you know what? Jesus is hard. I'm going to go back to just working hard and saving up as much money as possible. That's really going to be my salvation. I'm going to go back to really relying on having good relationships, sweet, good relationships. That'll, that'll save me. Or I'm going to run back to pleasure again. I tried Jesus for a while. I'm just, I'm just going to go back to pleasure. What is it you're tempted to waver in, to, to run back to? Endure difficulty and trust that Jesus is the answer. And Jesus is the answer. Holding on to him is the answer. No matter what comes, that doesn't mean our difficulty magically goes away. That means that he's the solution. And when we look to Jesus, we see Jesus endured difficulty as well. Jesus endured the ultimate difficulty of separation from the Father, of absorbing all of the world's sin and darkness onto his back for us, and then rising from the grave to defeat that difficulty. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without Wavering, Jesus is our hope. He's my salvation. Let's not waver. Let's not bend is literally what it means in the text, but hold on strongly for he who promised is faithful. Why are we holding fast? Again, let's go back and think through the, through the religious framework. A lot of times we think I've got to hold fast because I've got to earn my way, right? I was saved by Jesus, but then I'll be sanctified by holding fast and enduring difficulty. No, no, no. We endure difficulty because he is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. Because we're relying on him. We're pointing back to Jesus as the source of our strength, as the one that we're holding onto. Uh, The word endure here, I'm saying this whole section is endure difficulty. That word endure doesn't appear in this verse, but it appears throughout the New Testament. And the word endure is this idea of digging into the ground, of remaining stuck in your position, not giving in. And when you're doing that, the ground is your strength, right? The solid rock of Jesus is where your strength comes from. That's what it means to endure. This is grace-based vulnerability versus the idol of comfort, I think. In our world, we're often looking for comfort, but here we're told to hang on without wavering, even when hard times come. One of my favorite cross-references of this is in 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15. This is a verse that we get the word apologetics from. Uh, Apologetics is the art and science of giving a reasonable defense for why it makes sense to follow Jesus. I love apologetics. I love to read apologetics authors like Tim Keller and Lee Strobel and C.S. Lewis and stuff like that. They, they help us to understand that it makes sense to follow Jesus, right? That's apologetics. But what we sometimes miss is that apologetics does not take place in an ivory tower. Apologetics is not an academic exercise. 
the place that the, the word for apologetics, apology, uh, defense comes from in the New Testament, that Greek word where it's rooted in 1 Peter 3, it's all about suffering and enduring difficulty. That's where we will really give an answer for why we have hope in Jesus. Look at 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15. Even if you suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Are you unafraid? Are you unafraid of all the things out there that you're being told day after day are going to end you and end your faith because you trust in Jesus? Have no fear of them, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, that's that Greek word apologetics, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So if you love apologetics as I do, I had to repent of the reality that apologetics is is not this academic exercise whereby I get to show how smart I am and I can defeat atheists' arguments. That's not really apologetics. Apologetics biblically is you're suffering and you still hope in Jesus. And you're giving a reason for that. You're explaining, why do I hope in Jesus? Because Jesus has shown himself faithful. You're giving explanations of why Jesus is faithful. You're pointing to Jesus even though you're suffering, even though you're enduring difficulty, even though life is hard. That's what it means to follow Jesus. I grabbed a picture of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. who's a famous example of someone who endured difficulty, who lived out this suffering for Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. One of my favorite quotes of Bonhoeffer. We have a short life, relatively speaking. When you look at the history of time, the history of the world that we know, our life is just a little blip on the radar. And what are you going to do with that life? Are you going to spend your days holding on to every blessing you can, fighting and scrapping to survive? Or are you going to give your life away? Are you going to pick up your cross and follow Jesus? I recognize, man, it's a short life. There's going to be a lot of suffering. Of course, I'm not going to pursue suffering. Of course, I'm not going to run chasing after it. Of course not. But there will be suffering. There's going to be a lot of suffering. And I'm going to trust that Jesus is faithful. And I'm going to trust that Jesus can make sense of my suffering. He can use my suffering. He can transform my suffering. As we like to say and celebrate recovery, God never wastes a hurt. It doesn't mean that God likes suffering or that evil is good or that bad things are good, but God can transform those things. God can work through those things. The most evil thing that ever happened in the history of the world was Jesus dying on the cross. And God used that to save us. And so I think that God can use my suffering and your suffering as well to serve his greater purposes, to save people, to bless people. So really, before we move on, I just want to ask the question, what, what suffering are you most afraid of? What loss are you most afraid of? There, there are things that, that wake us up at night. There are things that wake me up at night. Worries that I have, things that gnaw at my stomach, right? What are the things that give you ulcers, that make you sweat, that give you nightmares? Just God knows those are there. Will you lay those before him? Say, God, I'm, I'm worried about this, but I trust you, God. You are sovereign. You are king. Lay that before your king. 
Give that to him. Ask a friend to pray for you. And this is going back to the confession idea again. In 1 John 1, it says we confess those things to God and he forgives us, he cleanses us, he works with us. But in James 5, it says we confess those things to our brothers and sisters and we ask them to pray for us. And that brings us to the last point. So the last point is that grace-based vulnerability commits to others. Grace-based vulnerability commits to others. I grabbed a lovely picture of someone helping someone else climbing a rock. So if you want to look at that for just a minute, um, life is hard. It's a world of suffering. This, of course, is kind of like a beautiful stock photography picture, right? So it makes it seem more romantic and exciting. Um, But really, when you're sweating and feeling like you can't take one more step, it's even more important that you have someone to help you up that rock, to help you up that cliff. And we're called together as brothers and sisters in Christ to help each other through the struggles of this life. Do you have brothers and sisters in your life that you're committed to, that you're walking through life with? So one more let us in verse 24 and 25. This one's pretty famous. I think you've probably heard this one before if you've been around church much. Verse 24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you you see the day drawing near. It's a fundamental commitment to each other that Christians are to have. Specifically here it says, stirring up one another to love and good works. I love this word, stir up. It's uh, the Greek word, we get paroxysm, uh, peroxide. It's like like an irritant, right? Um, This word is almost always a negative word. It's like annoy each other towards love and good works. It's kind of how you could paraphrase this, Mike. Like irritate each other towards love and good works. How are you going to stir one another up? I think the translation I first learned it in was spur one another on. Is that right? Is that, does that ring a bell? Spur on, right? Spurs are not comfortable. Cowboys would, you know, have these spiky things on their boots and they'd spur the horse to, to get the horse going. It's irritate one another. So there's going to be conflict. When you're committed to live in community, we all bring different backgrounds. We have different cultures, different preferences. But as we come and walk beside each other as Christians, as we commit to gather together, to spur one another on, there's going to be this, these sparks that will fly, right? As iron sharpens iron, there's this, these sparks that fly. There's friction that takes place there. It says, let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. He gives more context, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as some in the, are in the habit of doing. Man, the whole coronavirus thing has disrupted our normal patterns of worship. And that might have tempted us to just say, well, let's just forget about it until this all blows over and we'll stop meeting together. Well, to clarify here, this word gathering together is often used formally for the church gathering together or synagogues, Jewish work, uh, Jewish worship centers gathering together. But he gives specific context of how, what, what takes place when we gather together. And I believe this is a very important individual application for us. How how are we going to apply this verse? Encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing more. We're encouraging one another, which means come alongside 
Literally, the Greek is come alongside. It's like the image of you putting your arm around someone, saying, we can do this. Come on, let's go. It's this calling out alongside to someone is literally what it means. And then you pair that with irritating each other towards love and good works. How are we going to do that? Well, part of how we do that is the teaching of God's word in our public gatherings. It's the worshiping together in song in our public gatherings. Those are, those are important parts of it. And we don't want to throw those away. But there's a relational component that we really want to encourage you towards. Um, we still have small groups that we want you to join. Women's ministry starting back up in a couple of weeks. We're going to have a men's breakfast in a few weeks uh, later. We're, we're still going to do things to gather people and to help you connect in addition to our worship gatherings. But we want to encourage you to take steps to grab a couple of other people and say, let's, let's pray for each other. Uh, when you go to our website, it says join a group. If you click on join a group, you can find a card and I would love for everyone to print one of these cards or to just jot down what it says. I'll tell you what it says on the card. We're calling these three by five groups, three by five groups, right? It's a play on words. We're trying to be cutesy because we said, what's just the basic fundamentals, like the simplest building block of what we're wanting to be people to do in a small group? We've got Celebrate Recovery. We've got women's ministry. We've got men's groups. We've got small groups that meet in homes and at the church, and all these different ways of gathering uh, in groups, joining groups. But what's the simplest component, right? For people whose schedules, maybe it's hard for them to gather, or maybe health reasons make it hard for you to gather, or it's hard to find a place where you can spread out and follow whatever the regulations are. Three by five groups, basically we're saying three people take five actions. You got that? You get the play on words now? Three by five? It's like a three by five card. But it's three people taking five actions. You want to hear what they are? What do you think? Okay. One, share your high. What's your high? Your high of the day, your high of the week. If you're getting together weekly for coffee with a couple of buddies to pray or a Christian at work to pray for each other and encourage one another, share your high. Number two, share your low. What got you really down? What are you discouraged about? Number three, read God's word together. Maybe it's a verse that you're memorizing. Maybe it's something we're studying in church together. Maybe it's a Christian book that y'all decide to read together, but read God's word together. Number four, what did you learn? What are you learning from reading God's word? What's God challenging you towards? How are you struggling to apply that? What did you learn? And then number five, pray for each other. Now, I was talking to a friend about this just yesterday uh, just a few months ago, she just found a friend at work, great Christian friends, they're reading a Christian book, they're praying for each other, uh, and we kind of talked about how, how weird it is to move from, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, let's actually meet and pray with each other, right? That's a huge leap, isn't it? Can, can we admit that that's socially awkward, right? Yes, thank you, thank you, I see those hands. That is socially awkward, but the verse says, let us irritate each other towards love and good works. Let's not give up meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing, but let's gather. Let's encourage. Let's walk beside each other. So this is huge. We're going to continue to promote this over the next several weeks. We see this as the basic building block. Of course, you can still gather uh, and join a, a more formal group, and that's a great way to do it if this feels like too much for you. But I just I hear for a lot of people the busyness of your life, your work schedule, whatever other issues that you're facing, it's, it's hard to join a group. So we're asking you to create a group, a three-by-five group 
Number one, share your high. Number two, share your low. Number three, read God's word together. Number four, what did you learn? Number five, pray for each other. That's, that's pretty simple, right? It's not rocket science. I encourage you to take these steps and your life will be transformed. You'll be making disciples. You'll be helping another person grow in their faith and you'll be growing in your faith as you share your real struggles in life. Again, going back to what does confession mean? It's like, hold, let's hold fast to our confession. And then James says, confess your sins one to another. Pray for each other that you may be healed. How, how are we living that out? Do you have those kinds of relationships where people actually know you and you know them and you're encouraging each other to grow in your faith? All right, we'll wrap up here again. We're saying big picture is that if you understand God's grace, that gives you confidence in verse 19, which literally the Greek is, that allows you to speak freely. Not just to say stuff, but to be vulnerable, to need God, to cling to him through difficulty, and to need each other. Grace-based vulnerability. That's the kind of people that we want to be in a world that is so divisive that is saying who you are is based on the political party you affiliate with or the conspiracy theory that you believe the most or the group that you hate the most or whatever divisive thing we're being told to believe. No, we believe that our fundamental identity is belonging to Jesus. And we belong to Jesus and that's going to, because of that grace, enable us to be vulnerable with each other, to have real relationships where we encourage one another where we pray for each other, where we walk with each other. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us to live this out, that by your grace we would have a real vulnerability with you, that that we would feel a freedom to approach you in prayer, that we would worship you, we would love you, we would know that you are good. Uh, Lord, we pray that that grace that you've given us in Jesus would translate into endurance, holding on to you without wavering, remembering that you are enough. And finally, Lord, we pray that that grace that you give us would make us vulnerable in our commitments to one another, that we would have deep relationships, that we would commit to one another and walk beside one another, encouraging one another, spurring one another on, stirring one another up towards love and good works. Help us, Lord. We pray that you would be glorified in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.